Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Nancy Wyman. Now, Nancy is an architect and she bases herself in two places, New York City and Sedona. And we've had a lovely little chat, pre-chat here about whiskey. So we may cover some whiskey. We'll see. And about her travels in Scotland, New Zealand, places like this where she's really engaged in traveling and looking at what the world does, architecture does in these places. And we're going to cover a whole lot of different subjects around philosophy of architecture and the psychology of the journey in architecture. So, Nancy, welcome to Talk Design. Lovely to have you here. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to kick back to, you know, early days, and I do want to cover, like, why architecture and why women in architecture, you know, what was it like when you first started? But I want to come back to before that, 
how why architecture you know at what point in your life as a kid did you go oh there's this thing called an architect how did you even know well it's kind of an interesting story i was a cellist in new york i was toting my giant cello around going to lessons and what have you the cello was actually larger than me <laughs> and i had 9 years and my and i had been to the aspen music school the summer of 10th or 11th grade and then i came back and my teacher said you know you should probably look at new mexico great orchestra great teacher i know you loved aspen colorado you'll love it there so i go there and needless to say the practice rooms were not on the little trickling river like in Aspen it was like in the basement of the performing arts center and I didn't particularly like my teacher so I went home back to New York at Christmas and I said I don't think this is going to work like my ear for music wasn't terrific but I was a very good at disciplining myself so therefore I was a good cellist so my parents being the opposite of helicopter parents today said go figure it out so I go to the wow. Museum of Modern Art and there was a Italian furniture exhibit. So I walked in and I walked out and I go that's it. I'll just be an architect. I love this design. I'm great in math. My minor's art. I'm already halfway there. So I go back to New Mexico and I knock on the door of the Department of Architecture and I said, "Hello, I have a major in art and a minor in art and I want to change from music to architecture." So I was one of 3% women at the time and yeah. and I never looked back. So was it was it a hard situation? I I think it's probably still comes more naturally than if I had been a cellist. Right. So because that would have been a hard road. A harder yeah. harder road. So that was the beginning of my career. I think that and if you go back to being a cellist, you worked in an orchestra so you had to work with lots of people you have to mm -hmm. be on time you know your timing's really important your part in it is like really important yet your you way. can't your part in what you're doing is really important but you you don't form everything it's kind of like in, in, in the architectural form of you've got to work with the you know with the with the ground you've with the team with the, with the environment and then yeah the client the team you've got to pull all those things together and you've got to actually be part of it. You've got to orchestrate what happens um, right. to get the final piece. You've written them, you've drawn the music or you've written the, the piece, you know, and then it's like, how do you get that thing to be standing there at the end of the day? So every Saturday I would go to Manus School of Music for architect, for orchestra practice Saturday mornings and to be in an orchestra, like you say, everybody's around you, but the best thing you can do to do well is to listen. You have to listen to everybody around you in order to do your part correct. Right. Because it's the, it's the delivery of the whole, mm -hmm. not you. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the same for architecture. And I think there are many architects that maybe have big egos and they think it's all about them, but it's all about the performance of the entire team. Yeah. Yeah. So you're listening and you're doing. And even when I was young, I was super, super shy. And I, and people would say, you know, like my father would say, well, why don't you talk? And it's like, 
I'm listening, like actually I would go into many adult situations and not say something initially because I wanted to know who I was talking to. Mm. So listening first mm. is, is a good thing to do. Well, it's an incredibly high skill. It's a, an incredibly valuable skill mm-hmm. to be able to listen and take you know, the parts, or or listen to it all, but take the parts that you go, oh, okay. And you get to, if you listen, actually get to discover the person or the people that are talking. Yeah. Right. Like listening to your client. Mm. I mean, that's really our business is being able able to to listen to what they're saying and to deliver what they want and work it into your own talent Mm -hmm. and be able to tell them when they're wrong. But mm-hmm. you're still listening. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think there's a wonderful thing with that. You know, like the, the thing is, is this empathetic journey and architecture of listening to your client. Like it, if, you, if you're doing it with, and, and maybe in, you know, commercial architecture, I was going to say less so, but less personally so. You know, like in commercial architecture, you're, you're covering off all these different occupants that will utilize this space. And so, yes, you've got a client that you're listening to. However, you're thinking of a lot more people, whereas in residential architecture, you're thinking with a couple of people. You know, yes. there's a couple of drivers. And so the the amount of information is far more intimate than the amount of information when it's, say, commercial. You Absolute. know. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. And the, yeah. the ability to discern where that sits and then I always think you know if if your but if your dream isn't bigger than your budget then you probably need a bigger dream or you we've you've got way 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 more money than you know is probably worth spending on the project who knows yeah well I always tell people to to live their biggest dream because you don't want to do a home and go oh I should have done that I didn't think I could do that and it's like so I usually tell people, especially in schematic design, that should be your time that you take the most time and don't feel like you're hurrying up to get to the end because you really want to make sure, even if you can't do your dream, that you thought about it and you analyze it and say, okay, I can't do this because of that, but don't just skip over it. Yeah, don't shelve it. Bring it yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. totally. I say to clients, if you don't ask for it now, you're never going to get it because I won't know you needed it or wanted it. But if you ask for it now, we've got a chance of getting it. Absolutely. <laughs> and at, at least it's on the table. And the other thing is, is you know, with with all design, it's a journey because they don't know what they don't know. Correct. That's why I tell people, I'll keep you out of your own way. <laughs> you think that. you want this coffee table and it's like it really doesn't work so yeah that's a <laughs> good really idea, good but <laughs> so it's like yes well, I like people to take the lead and I and I want them to feel like it's their house at the end of the day that they actually were part of the design or the uh-huh. designer but if it weren't for me they would maybe not end up with the home that they have because they needed the parameters to work within. Well, that's being the conductor as well, isn't it? It's like, again, it's listening. It's listening. I love the analogies between music and architecture. And I've got 
on the podcast, I've got several people who, if I'd known that you were a celloist, I'd have probably asked you to play an intro and an outro, which we may still ask you to do. One of those neat things with music is, is it's you 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 go on journeys with it. Mm-hmm. It it evolves. It lets itself out. It, it, and in songs or in you know pieces of music, it it follows a rhythm and stuff, and it goes somewhere, and it gets familiar, and then it goes new again. And right. I, I always think architecture has the same brilliant ability to do this. Well, I think I think the basis of both of them is math. Good call. Yeah. So that's why, you know, if you're good at math, you should be really able to go either way. Now, it helps to be, it helps to have good taste and to be more graphic in the architectural world. But I feel like music is, is a lot of numbers. Yeah. Yeah, it I is. I mean, maybe not actual arithmetic numbers, but everything is intervals. And you start by having a metronome, mm-hmm. which keeps you in place. Yeah. 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 So it's a good, it's a good sprouting point, you know, for me to have been a cellist and I had, I had to, I actually can't do an introduction because I had to give it up because it is very consuming to be one or the other. You really can't do both. Right. Yeah. Right. So I won't be able to do an introduction at the end. (laughs) Especially, Especially to the level that you want to play it. That's the other thing. Yes, it would just be a major frustration. (laughs) I'm I'm about to release a podcast very soon where he's done me a couple of guitar pieces, original pieces. He's an architect from Austin, Texas. And uh, yeah. And and, and look, I was talking to you earlier about Rick Joy. Rick Joy's a drummer. He's oh. a, and, and he could have just played professional music his whole life, but he chose architecture, but he still plays drums. I think it's the discipline that really comes in very handy. Yeah. yeah. Discipline that's required for a musician is, is probably a good starting point to be an architect. Mm. It mm. takes a lot of time, more time than you ever thought, lots of hours upon hours to do the right thing. And so having that discipline coming from music is, it, sh- it, shows, it shows you immediately that it pays off. Yeah, great. I love that. I love that. It's, a, it's something that I find fascinating. I'm not a musician. I find it fascinating how many people in architecture are musicians and still play in bands as well. Like they still, you know, it's their hobby, but mm-hmm. there's a passion about both things. There's an absolute passion about creating right. music and then a passion about creating buildings and, and homes and stuff like that. So well, tell- but, but you are on Spotify, so you are you not a musician? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm definitely I think not a musician. Podcasts are a kind of a type of music. <laughs> Maybe not as unstructured as mine. Right. <laughs> the, house, the houses I do are way more structured than this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I do, I, I love, I absolutely love music. I'm not that musical. Okay. I'm not like, my ear doesn't break it up into pieces. My youngest daughter sings and sings and sings and sings. And I'm like, I, I hear lyrics that she's singing because she'll be singing the song with no music uh-huh. and I'll hear the lyrics and I'm like, and I'll know the song. I'll, I'll recognize it. I won't know it. I'll recognize the song. And I'm like, she'll be in the car with me. And I'm like, 
oh, wow, that's what that song's about. Because <laughs> otherwise I'm listening, but I'm not discerning the music or the, or the, um, right. or the lyrics. I'm listening right. to the rhythm of it and the feeling of it that it gives. Let's segue with that to architecture and the feelings it gives. So that psychology and the experience that architecture brings to the recipients. And I, look, Mark Dyson is on the podcast and he said to me, I'm trying to think how it went, but it was basically this thing where you can't, a building must speak for itself because you can't stand outside of it all day and tell people about it. So you've got to get it is a eh? like you and he does you know, buildings as well like you know bigger buildings but you can't stand in the street and go well I, I I was thinking this and I want you to experience this so everybody gets a unique experience of all architecture good or bad based on the journeys you give them right right so actually when I was in school back in New Mexico one of my first teachers took us on a walk and he's like, I'm going to show you what architecture is. I'm like, well, how could you do that? So he took us for a walk, like around the art studio and in an area that was just a breezeway. And then another place that was a big room and another one that was a little room. And we didn't really know what he was doing, but what he explained to us at the end was like, did you feel differently as you were going through this breezeway? Did you feel differently in the toilet room versus the conference room? Like, of course. So it's like, I, I was very sort of taken back that you could really affect people's emotions by having them walk through your space, as opposed to if you're Van Gogh and your picture's on the wall and you're standing there, you're taking people someplace else. But it is very impactful to be able to take people through a space that you've designed, that you believe will give them some kind of emotion. And it was just this morning early, actually, I was taking a seminar on designing for happiness. And what does that mean? Like, how do you design for, like, how do you ensure that somebody's going to be happy? And I don't mean, you know, the grouchiest person in the world, maybe you can't (laughs) change them, but how do you ensure, or how do you affect somebody's happiness through architecture? Well, you can. I mean, interestingly enough, you really can. And the, actually, my husband was reading a book and he was telling me that I, he reads a lot of history, like Adolf, Adolf Hitler aspired to be an architect because he wanted to affect people. Well, yeah, right. people <laughs> and the world in a very bad way. He changed but, directions a little. <laughs> a little bit, but affecting people through architecture is a very powerful thing to do. Mm. I th- I think, like I was saying to you earlier, like I went and visited Taliesin West just recently, and I've got a great photo of a friend of mine, Tim, standing with his head in a light well because the, the ceiling is so low. Frank's compressed it so low that he mm-hmm. can't actually walk through the space. <laughs> and that compression release, you know, these things that – these people have created emotional journeys from is I think it's all powerful all powerful yes yes so for myself working in Manhattan and working in Sedona you can imagine the effect and how do you make people happy in Manhattan versus how do you make them happy in Sedona Arizona 
you have different things at your disposal. You have a totally different toolkit in mm. New York than you have in Sedona. Mm. Very different. And how do you Very how do you transfer different. one to the other? Because they're both human. Well, you want to take the best of both worlds, and and so actually in Manhattan, where efficiency, 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 because every place is so small. Mm-hmm. So if you take the size of my laptop right here, you want to be able to use that space wherever it is. Maybe it's between two studs. Maybe it's underneath the cabinet. Maybe it's up high. You have to use every single spot space. I mean, sometimes even in my Manhattan apartment, it's like, where do I put the aspirin? I need another two by two inches of space everything is like you know like there is lack of space so here in Sedona I think that I designed very efficient kitchens dressing rooms bathrooms so then if somebody says I want approximately 3200 square feet you have more space that you can go, aha, and here's your amazing gallery with the outdoors and whatever, because we've now already taken care of everything else that had to be, you know, fit like a glove. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example where you take this toolbox and you move it over to here. Yeah. And, you know, then you do the opposite, maybe in Manhattan, maybe you don't have the ability to create large window spaces, but maybe you can create light filled spaces some other way. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So like it, that. it's it's kind of very interesting, right? Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I something that rings in my kind of head is is so Australia and America build the biggest houses in the world, right? We we're the most inefficient with use mm-hmm. of space. And we've gone through COVID where building prices have seen probably their biggest shift in the last skyrocketed yeah like you know 40 percent in construction costs and things like that so there's no probably little blip in history that shows anything like what we've just done with these rocketing prices and they're not it's not really a blip because it doesn't come back down it just goes up we wish it would be a blip yeah and we wish it would come yeah like a little nice little hill and now it's back to here (laughs) at least a mall exactly exactly (laughs) so with it um our space efficiency and our you know size equals dollars when you build finishes do as well but size definitely equals dollars so the yes. bigger it is, the more it's going to cost, the more you're going to spend. And in doing that, how do we get homes that are rationalized to take both your skills, right? So one is this, this desert architecture and the other is this Manhattan architecture. How do we rationalize so that we get the best of both? And then I want to go beyond that how do we engage nature in both of those? Because that's another pandemic thing that we go, so many people lacked being in nature that they're thriving, that they're, sorry, they're they're striving to get nature into their space. So the last home, well, I'm currently designing it. So it's in schematic design now. And it's, it's interesting because it's not a typical family, which is another whole phase that's happening now where, different people are occupying homes. So homes are becoming different because the occupants are not necessarily your typical four person family, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So 
it's a it's a home for a French woman and her mother are going to live there. And they, so I wanted to create the same efficient space, but being that they're coming from Manhattan and Paris, they're going to be so ready for the outdoors. Yeah, They can't get enough of their outdoors. So what I ended up designing was more of a compound with like a small meditation room and a small casita, which doubles as a pool room. And then her, her bedroom and her mom's bedroom, but the whole thing is, it's, it's a fantastic site because it has lots of property, but the building envelope and the restrictions are so tight for this HOA that we wanted to build something that conforms to the requirements, but it doesn't look like it. So by separating out these buildings and me, eat, made, making each one super efficient, Mm-hmm. gives us more ability to have space between mm. the two buildings or mm. between the four buildings. Mm. And they're already used to Manhattan and Paris. So if I give them a very crunched up dressing room, but that's super efficient and it works, they're going to be happy as a clam because they can go out and enjoy their yard. Yeah, gotcha. gotcha. Where somebody from Texas might say, I need my giant walk-in closet. Like uh-huh. I can't live without that. But if you come from a city you're used to a little bit of that sort of smaller proportions, right? Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. I've stayed in New York and in Paris many times. And I think other than Japan, Mm -hmm. um, those would be the spaces where I was always amazed at how much they could achieve in so little. Right. Right. And I, I think the best example of that is in a boat. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say a tiny house. Yeah. Tiny house, but mostly a boat. You can learn a lot from a boat. It's kind of amazing. Or an RV. Yeah. 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 You you get very efficient in how you consider. The desk becomes the the bed that becomes the countertop that becomes, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like these dual purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always think of when I first went to Paris, was climbing the stairs into this room that we were staying in and my girlfriend and I and we had our backpacks I think maybe it certainly wasn't the case actually you know what it was they were they weren't backpacks they were big soft bags and like duffel bags yeah and I had to carry them up this little round staircase like pinched between the walls, hugging this bag, not being able to see where I could put my feet. And all the way up, I was thinking, I've got to come down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be carrying yeah. these back down this, down this, almost like a ladder, you know, like, how am I going to do this? And then getting up there and going, we had a bag each, <laughs> going, oh, no. <laughs> where do yeah, I, I, think, I think we recently did that in Bowen. And so we get up with our giant bags and we're ready to put our toilet articles out. And then we realize, wait, the bathroom's downstairs. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the WC was. <laughs> yeah, right. I think there's so much to be learned by that efficiency of space. And, and look, regulations have changed things enough as well, you know, like with a staircase, say, for instance. We wouldn't be allowed to build a staircase like that. And if it was a public space, we couldn't give them a ladder instead. You know, it's like all these kinds of things. But right. I do find it fascinating. And one of the best things about travel 
is this thing of experiencing architecture in different cultural spaces. I, I think that's so important. I mean, that that is the number one place where I get my inspiration. And quite honestly, Sedona, Arizona is kind of, you know, it's not a big city. Mm-hmm. People don't travel inter- travel internationally all that much. There are architects that really don't leave the state. And sometimes I'm thinking, wow, you know, I keep seeing the same architecture. And I think to myself, do they never leave? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Because that's kind of what it takes. Like, even if I go to New York and pop out of the apartment, it's like, oh, I never saw that. Oh, I never thought about that. Not only the people, but the surfaces and the environments. And, you know, you go into the latest restaurants and the tile design just in the bathroom is like incredible. And it's just a bathroom inside Mm -hmm. a restaurant. And it's Mm -hmm. like, just like, you know, these sparks go off all the time, like, wow, I haven't seen this. And how about that? And this application. And so travel is, is all about that inspiration. I think so much like you with this. It's like I was in Barcelona last year. I was in, you know, across the US this year and in Canada and just looking at different things and then seeing the parallels. And I think that I think that architecture has become rather homogenized because of social media and the speed of being able to see things all around the world. And often I think that architecture no longer responds to the environment or the site. It responds to the social media. Well, because everybody wants to like look the same. Like if, if women are into black pants, the whole world has black pants and a white mm-hmm. shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's but I think going back to it affecting you because you've walked through it so not too long ago I was in Vietnam and we went to the market and we I understood that literally a five by five area yep. has been owned by the same family for four generations and maybe they only sell coconut milk so what is what does this surface look like and this surface look like? I mean, it is so depicted with every whatever they need because four generations have figured out what to do with these three walls. And it's only when you really walk through there, then you go, wow, somebody could really sit in a space at six by six all mm. day long and mm. do what they need to do. Whereas we think we have to have this and that and and... It's it's that walking through the space, back to walking through the space that allows you to sort of see it, feel it, taste it, and then mm. you get it. Mm. Mm, definitely. I find I find the emotional journey and the feelings that architecture throws to people, throws up for people, a really fascinating subject. And if you were to look at when you've got a, a home, so, you know, you said before, like a, designing for happiness. And I go, and every home, there's it's got to deliver different things at different times. So my example would be in the morning, most people are getting ready to go somewhere to do something for their day. And so their bathroom delivers this emotional experience. If it's poorly laid out, 
then it's got frustration. You know, if there's not enough counter space, if there's not enough space for them to do what they need to do comfortably, if it all steams up or, or whatever it is. Yeah, like when you travel and you're like in a hotel that just didn't get it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of them. And then <laughs> so when you go to a home, you've got that. And then also on the other side of it, you go, this may be a space of renewal and refreshment. And then it's a space that has to allow you to take time. Now, it's still the same space. Mm-hmm. And then it mm-hmm. might be a space of, you know, privacy. It might be so that it's relaxing, so that it can be. So, again, how do you add that to it? Now, it's the okay. same old space that's doing different things at different times. So I always think, you know, like if people are putting a bath in, is the bath to wash in or is it to relax in? What, well, how are you using it when? The underlying current of much of what you're talking about is comfort. Mm-hmm. People want to be comfortable. They want to be able to do whatever they have to do and feel comfortable and have the adequate light, ventilation, whatever happiness springs to them. For, you know, could be plants in the in the in the shower. I mean, who mm-hmm. knows? But once you, once you get that comfort figured out, and that's different for a lot of people. Mm. If you if if you can hear that and get that with your client before you design the space, then at the end of the day, they should have their comfort, whatever that means. I think this journey of finding out what their comfort is, and then the architecture responding to it, is probably the most powerful thing that you can do to help a person have a happier or a better life from the architecture. I mean, it sounds really easy. It sounds like, well, you listen and they tell you what you do and then you do it. But then we have things called budget and schedule (laughs) and buildability. And now all these things make it very complicated. So they want to have fantastic lighting, but and on a system and maybe it's not in their budget and they didn't know that and you already designed it or you didn't Mm. like so all of these other factors come in or like in Sedona there's details that you can't build because the trades here are maybe not as sophisticated as they are in Scottsdale right so maybe you can't design an integrated sink made out of marble okay yeah right because you can do that in New York, but you, you know, won't find the trades or you'll have you to train the trade, trade to do it. Yeah. Like they know how to put a countertop on with yep. the sink that you bought. Yeah. But you really can't do anything but that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then we go to construction and it's like part of my thing is that I do construction management and mm-hmm. design. So if you take these things that people want and you try to convert it to a buildable um, home and you have all these other challenges, if you have the skill set to get through those challenges and to make the dream come true, yet going through the phase of construction, which most people would like to skip in its entirety. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Can we just not do that yeah, part? Can we just not, yeah, can, can some, just let that happen. <laughs> Could you just go poof and it's there? Yeah, exactly. Overnight, I'd like to see all that, please. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. So that that's really where the challenges come in. And that's where I think I've been able to offer more of a skill set so that that is not as an awful sort of phase mm-hmm. of creating your home. I it, It's so fascinating. Years ago, I was living in Nice in, in France. And nice. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fabulous. I lived actually in Saint Genet, which was up on the side of Nice, and it's oh yes, I do know that's gorgeous, beautiful spot, gorgeous. little walking town. And Very... uh, for my rent, for renting the place I was living in, I did a deal where I would paint the paint the place on the outside, which was a mission in itself, but a lot of fun, and renovate the kitchen, and so. Perfect. I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I'm going to be there for months. So, yeah, that would be really cool. And I, we could see from Antibes to Cap Ferrat, like across yeah. the top of the, yeah, across the med. Just incredible. Anyway, with doing it, I I started with this kitchen thing that I was going to be doing. And I had to find some tradespeople. Now, I don't right. speak French. I kind of thought that was going to be the next part of the story. (laughs) And so I wanted some, I mean, it's obviously a very old, old building. It's, you know, it's original. And I wanted some blacksmith steel work done and I wanted some timber work done. And, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yes. And, you know, in these, in these little towns, it's like somebody opens a garage and it's a workshop. But mm-hmm. there's no garage because it's a walking town. But there's mm-hmm. this little workshop, artisan workshop areas. I finally found a guy who was actually Dutch who did my blacksmithing. And I ended up in the blacksmith shop with the hammer and poking bits of steel into the furnace with him and then hammering it out with him and getting it first, you know, the first kind of pieces. And I'd drawn it. I'd done all those things. So and, you relied uh, on yourself. Uh-huh. And he built them in the end. He he made the multiples I needed. But we kind of made the first one together. And it was the most fascinating experience because he spoke no English. And I spoke <laughs> no Dutch or French. A little. So maybe sounds I like fun. <laughs> yeah. But we I executed this whole thing doing that. And it's like you say, the trades, they were capable. Right. But they needed, you needed to actually execute it with them because they weren't able to necessarily translate it from a drawing because they weren't, they weren't trades who took architectural plans and made things. Right. And actually they don't even read drawings too well Mm -hmm. because they don't get drawings. So there is a lot of handholding here in Sedona and I have guys that I've been working with for 10 years now. And now they're like, Oh, I know what we gotcha. Or they know when to call me and it's like, well, this is not what we usually do. So what do you think, Nancy? Because I don't think this is what you want. It's like, perfect. You know, so we don't have to do all that. In other parts in Chicago, there was something I was going to do and the guy wanted everything drawn out to the last tile. And it's like, I don't really do that. I usually talk to the tile guy and we kind of work it out. Mm -hmm. Like even on the floor where the tiles are going to go, I don't always have a plan, but he's like, okay, you have a choice. The small tile can be there, there, we can split them. We can, what do you want to do? Yeah. And this is, you know, and this is a lot of what you were doing in Nice, yeah. where it's 
hands-on, you're relying on yourself. And if you do it with enough confidence, then everybody's going, terrific. (laughs) I, I think also like the number of times that you work with a trade, like I might say, like you were saying with, you know, maybe a tile layout, if it's an existing building, even if it's new, maybe less. So we might draw the draw everything you know we might show them the tile lay on the wall etc right, right. however if it's an existing building or if it, I will always even no matter what we've drawn I will always go and say to them which way do you want to approach this but forget the plan right. just show me what you think is best for this room right now they're not right. necessarily the artist but in saying that they are the the person who's going to execute it Right. And if they can, and then, you... and then sometimes back to the client, there's two ways to do it. This yeah. is a little more costly, but you're going to get this at the end of the mm-hmm. day versus that. Mm-hmm. So there's those conversations also. And as the architect, you're in between the two of them. And so it's like, okay, he can do this or he can do this. It's going to cost this or it's going to cost this. Yeah. What's the, what's the aesthetic? You know, I would recommend this because of how this looks versus that. And so it's, it is a group conversation. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I think that that's a really important point. So tell me this. So you've been in this industry a little while and you're a woman in this industry and I think maybe in the last 15 years or so, women in this industry far more prevalent than they were previously. And you get, you know, your hands on in construction administration here and management. Right. So how have you gone? What's the journey as a woman in the industry? You know, from sort of like, oh, I don't know, 80s on. How's yeah, it changed? So actually, it was... In the late 80s, I was living in San Francisco and the architecture business, the economy, everything was just kaput. Mm -hmm. It was really, there was very little to do. So it was actually my daughter's father who came to me and said, you know, we're taking a bunch of architects and real estate brokers and we're developing this company and we're going to do program management, which is construction management where you hire not only the contractor, but also the architect to do a program. Mm -hmm. And he's like, the deal is you you don't get paid until we get paid from the client. Are you okay with that? So the client was the Bank of America. And we were embarking on building 5,000 ATMs in California and 1,500 branches. Wow. Because they they had bought Security Pacific, Mm -hmm. and that was the job. So we started, and we, I don't know if it was all of us, but the upper management definitely tripped on themselves, and we had to be re-interviewed, and then we really got the job. Kind of, we sort of had the job. We lost the job. (laughs) We got the job. So, of course, what did we do? We got much better immediately. We got much better. So, with that, I was suddenly in charge of interviewing some architects that I had worked with in the past and also telling contractors what to do. And I was probably one of very few women. And I think that the the best way to get respect as a woman back then in the 80s, starting on the 90s, was to be in charge of the money that's being paid out. If you're the one that's paying the contractor or the architect, 
the whole world changes in front of you where yeah, you're right. just a big shot and they love you and they can't do enough for you. As compared to if you're a younger woman on a job site, you know, and you tell a contractor what to do or whatever, there's some challenges with that maybe even today. Uh -huh. So, so once I became sort of a program manager and very much in charge of the budget of these projects, which was quite huge, it, it was, it was different. I went on and I started working for federated department stores that was building Macy's uh -huh. and there were probably 11 project managers across the country. I was the only woman. I first walked into a meeting in Cincinnati in a boardroom where there was only men's rooms and, and everybody thought I was the admin for my... <laughs> Somebody's secretary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the man that hired me was a New Yorker who used to be the security person at Macy's Herald Square and he became the, the top of construction. And so he hired me and he was, he was all about, you know showing everybody that it could be done. So mm -hmm. there were a lot of contractors that I had, you know, to boss around basically, but, and it was, it was a different world that, that time. And one of the meetings I went to, I was building a Macy's store in Frisco, Texas. And the people that approved your permit was, were also the fire marshals, were also oh. the policemen. It was very small. And I went in there and the entire time nobody was looking at me, they were looking at my boss and my boss kept saying, and Nancy's a project manager, she'll be the one talking to you. She's in charge of this project. And so on the way out, I said, look, I'm just going to take my New York attitude, stick it in my pocket, and you're going to go to these meetings because clearly they're not listening to me. So you just have to kind of assess the situation and keep moving. And one of the, and the construction administrator that worked for me there on site was the guy who would go to all those meetings from there. And it was, you know, I was an architect, suddenly I'm a construction manager. 3% of women entering University of New Mexico was not enough. Like, what am I doing? I had to do this also. So yes, I did that. And it, it taught me a lot. And and especially going back to architecture now that I've really understood construction, it's, yeah. it's a very powerful skill set to have. Oh, I can imagine. And, you know, if you were looking at the industry now where you know, there's a lot more women in the industry, which you know, I think is a great thing that, you know, like often, often you sort of think as a home, if the cat doesn't own the home, the woman does, you know, like the cat, the cat always thinks it owns the home, but a woman tend to, you know, have this, it, a home has got a whole nother meaning more than, this is probably big generalizations, but more than men, they both have meaning, but differently. And mm -hmm. for women, it's a lot more, there's a lot more security and often they ask for a lot more tactility in their homes and stuff right. than, right. than men might. And yeah, just interesting in that thing. So if we look at the number of women now that are in in the industry and how the industry's had to reframe or shape itself, and, and even in the construction industry, you know, like I love going to site and there'll be women carpenters, women electricians. I think that it changes a lot of the mood that's on site. Even right. when I go surfing, if I paddle out into the water, 
and there's there's a few women in the lineup, it changes the, I don't know, maybe the testosterone-fueled environment. I'm not sure. Well, well, definitely. So back to just listening and giving clients what they want. It's, it's, it's a different approach when you're working in architecture. It's the same, but different because you mm. still have to see who you're dealing with. It's a little bit different because you're not expected to be the one telling people what to do, mm-hmm. where it certainly wasn't back in the 90s. And so you still have to say, okay, who am I really listening to? And what is my reaction? And how am I going to get them to do this task today that it wants to be due on Wednesday without any, you know, sort of handling, you know, like hand wrestling, right? Yes, yes. Or negotiation. Yeah. And and even if there is negotiation, how are you going to win this? Mm-hmm. So and- give me some give me some tips on that. Well, as, a, just, as a woman in the industry, so think of all our women listeners that are probably in the industry or possibly want to be in the industry. What would you, how would you sort of well, summarize I would like, say, how to behave? Okay, so I just had something happen this week and the contractor went away for a week. So the client knows, well, I'm kind of filling his shoes and it's up to me to do whatever and fine. So there was an excess amount of tile on the job site because the tile installer told me to told us to buy too much tile to right. the tune of 800 square feet. So we were going to use it on another part of the project, but it was up to the owner to pay for the install for that mm-hmm. tile, which was going to be costly. So his reaction was, how, am it, how is it that I'm spending more money to, ins- to, to do an install? I understand I'll get more tile, but why is it my deal to do that when the installer messed up? So I said, you're right. So I called the tile installer who I've been working with for like 10 years. And I told him, I know Bill is gone, but listen, I'm going to make, you know, I need for you to understand that this is a fair way to do things. So you take the tile away, but you were the one that miscalculated. So there's Mm -hmm. a value to that. And there's this extra tile. So you have a choice. You can either install it for less money, or you can take the tile away and give us money for the tile. But either one, it's your accident that the owner shouldn't pay for. Mm-hmm. So it's part of reasoning. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. I understand. And it's like, we'll explain this to Bill, but we have an understanding, right? So I need you to take the tile away because da, 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 da. And I think that if it was just up to Bill, he might have just said, well, this is what we're doing because da, da, you know what I mean? It yeah. wouldn't, like, well, walk me through this. Working and- with them. And working with them, and usually the answers to most construction questions or battles or whatever are always the come from the source document. So if you go back to the drawings or back to the specification, the answer is there. So I remember being in a construction trailer and they were having a fight with like who owns it, da, 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 it wasn't in the drawings. So I go, where's the project manual? And it's like, I opened up this crickety bottom drawer and dusted this thing off and it was like, boom, like here it is, like in the specifications, like there is no argument. Like you just have to read the documents. Mm. Most of the answers are there. Mm. And so I think as a woman, we have, we do have, I mean, 
you're a man. We love men. Nothing against mm. you. No, but no, you, no. But it's, it's you just do have a, a little more patience when it comes to resolving something and go, wait a second, let's really look into this and kind of like figure out what is fair to everybody. Yeah. And if, and if you can't figure it out, some of the things we used to do at Federated was like, okay, we can't figure out if it's Federated's fault, the contractor's fault, or maybe Macy's division. So you know what, we're going to take that cost and a third, a third, a third. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, we can't figure out whose fault it is. Mm -hmm. So we don't play the blame game. So share it. So we share it. And I think that that approach is a little more feminine. I think so as well. Situation. I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a really good thing for, you know, listeners to be able to go, oh, okay. I see the possibility in that approach. And see mm-hmm. see why that approach has value and that possibility because that makes a big difference right. to just understand it. Well, I've got a couple of last questions for you. I'm going to ask you two sets of last questions because I've been fascinated with our whole discussion. One is, which one am I going to ask first? Hmm. I'm going to go with in your home – and you can choose wherever that's going to be. What is your favorite space? Well, for most people, it's always a kitchen counter. Yeah, but what's yours? I don't care about them. I would say I do like my desk. I mean, I have a large desk. And there is, when you go to your desk in the morning, especially when it's in your own house, it does give you a sense of like you're there for a purpose. You have the protection of a desk in front of you, which is kind of nice. And it's you're going there to do something and you're leaving when that task is done. And a lot of other times you get interrupted or you're halfway doing this and halfway doing that. But I find that when I go to my desk to do something, I tend to do it stay there, be productive, and then leave. And it's it's not anything, it's not a place where anybody else is like putting their stuff on or messing with or whatever. It's like my space. <laughs> Ooh, I like this. So with your desk being like, you know, your favorite space, it's a space from what you just told me, I go, it's a space you have control over and exclusivity over. And it's a space where you can be productive. So it probably feels very purposeful. It's task driven. What emotion, if you had to choose a, a word, what emotion does it evoke for you? Or feeling uh, does it evoke? Say accomplishment. Oh, I like that. Accomplishment. <laughs> And what does that empower you to do and be when you get that feeling? Well, I think you need you need to accomplish things to gain confidence. And once you have confidence, then you can become a better designer because there's all these other things that are hitting you like bad ideas and bad subcontractors and weather and things that you can't control. So once you have accomplished 
you know, and you have in your vocabulary or in your portfolio so many great designs or for me, I've been on the cover of a magazine, like then once you have that, you're like, aha, I, I can do that. And it may not happen the first time or the second time, but you have the confidence that you can design a great building that will take into all the considerations. And at the end of the day, you're designing beauty, happiness. Mm. Mm. So it's a real thing of being able to give to give and you're like a mediator in the in the in the middle of everything while it's happening like you're not really the author until the end and then you're the author of like the whole group that you got together to make this happen right i like that i think this is really fascinating to understand you know what what spaces do for people and then in that space, if you describe the space where your desk is for me, what you can see and how it interacts with the rest of the house. Well, it's, I'm a service provider, right? Mm -hmm. So here I'm giving a very exclusive service. When I'm at the kitchen counter and I'm cooking for my family I'm also giving a service it's sort of the same thing but Mm. but at the end of the day I have a house to show for it where maybe I have a bowl of salad to show for it (laughs) you know (laughs) you're right that's actually really interesting yeah yeah so I you know I like being a service provider but I love architecture because at the end of the day you can go aha that's a real something well, nobody just eats it. You don't eat it. You don't. You don't consume it. It's not like a great bottle of wine. Or wait, Scotch whiskey. There's a. That's not it. a single malt because it's going to be gone. That's it. That's so interesting. Yeah, I like that. There's a longevity in being able to produce it as well. Yes. Mm. Yes. Definitely mm. longevity. I like that. Okay, great answers there. I love those. I ask a lot of clients. A lot of you know clients listen to me I ask a lot of architects and designers these questions because I'm fascinated to see how it flows and ebbs and Mm -hmm. what people find and even when I'm interviewing somebody who isn't from that from this industry I will still often ask them these same questions and see where they end up with what makes things tick for them what how it feels why it's that space so then i have another question which is my last one which will be so you've got one last project you can do and then there's no more that's it one last one you've got to wrap it up after that you can't talk about it do it be a part of anything else it's this one piece what do you choose well There's a lot of things I wanted to do, and I kind of clicked them off my box, like a townhouse, my own house, you know, lots of doctor's offices. So to do another project, I think I think what I'm thinking about right now is to actually not do a project, but to do like the rest of my life. (laughs) that's That's like also a project it's kind of like like i told you like mentoring is like the thought is still in schematic design 
I think what I'm doing is my last project. Ooh. Like I'm just formulating, what would that be? Mm, I love it. Tom Kundig from Olsen Kundig, I'm pretty sure it was his answer. He said to me, oh, well, I'd start something so big I couldn't finish it in my lifetime. <laughs> okay. And I thought that was a brilliant answer. Yours is the closest I've heard to it because he didn't want to stop. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm not doing one last project. I'm not even considering it. I right. want to keep, you know, doing, I want to keep doing this. And, you know, I don't know whether you know Glenn Merkitt from Australia. He's a very well-known architect globally, and he's in his 80s. And he's got like a, a five-year waiting list, does one project a year. And he he isn't on the podcast, but talking to Glenn, he's like, I can't imagine getting up in the morning to not do this. I know. This is it's, what I do. It's, it's, it's uh, me. I mean, we become very passionate about what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to think about what you would do besides this. Mm. So I don't know. I could be in schematic design on that thought for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So good, Nancy. So good. Well, thank you so much for taking thank the you. time. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to post all your socials and all those things. Obviously, we'll teach people how to get in touch with you. And I would encourage anybody who has enjoyed this podcast to reach out, ask Nancy some questions. You can do that via us or you can go direct to Nancy's website and do it via there. She has a wealth of knowledge and a wonderful personality, as you've just discovered. She's quite cheeky as well. She has lots of little jokes going on as well, which is good fun. Very easy to engage with. So do reach out. If you love the episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast and reach out to Nancy, have a look at her work, see what she can do for you to make your life a place of happiness. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as well. You have a great day. I will do. Cheers, Nancy. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, well, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, 
they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.